Welcome back to another episode of the Student Perspective Series. Today, we are going to talk about some of the red and green and even yellow flags when it comes to clinical practice. I'll talk more on that later. So what exactly do we mean by these red, green, or even yellow flags? So green flags, meaning these are the things specifically in clinical practice of, yes, when you see that definitely means it's probably a good place to work. We definitely want to see these things. Red flags, right, are those things that you want to stay away from. This is probably putting you on high alert of like, "Mm, is this maybe the place that I want to be at? And then yellow flags aren't necessarily red flags, but things that you might just want to be more alert and do some more research on. Now, granted, some of these things are more in line of clinical practice, but in general, like some of the red flags may apply to really any job you might be looking for. So let's get into it. I don't know about you all, but have you ever had a company actually give you a a non-compete clause? I've been warned about them, but I don't think I've ever actually had them. Although I've heard of other people getting that in their, in their contract, which basically states that if you work for our company, right, our ABA company, you cannot work for other ABA companies. Now, I can kind of see why companies would benefit from this, right? It's taking you off the job market to be able to work at other places. However, in my opinion, I would see this as a red flag because, you know, what if the company you are working for is not giving you enough hours or enough experience, right? You might want to seek that elsewhere. And by having a non-compete clause, that is essentially robbing you of that opportunity. So that's why I would say that's a red flag. It's also a really predatory practice. Um, And it's never personally happened to me, but I know people that this has happened to. And so just as a general red flag, if you see this for employment or for if you're seeking supervision, and this is also in your contract, that's an immediate red flag. And you might want to consider, hey, maybe this isn't a place I want to work. It's, you know, to put it frankly, it's a way to take advantage of you and your time and your resources um, because they know that it is difficult to get most especially experienced RVTs and they're going to keep you there. And it's really a way to take advantage of you. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's a really big red flag. Let's talk about another big red flag, which again, this is more of a a general red flag, I think with any company, let's talk about the big thing of money, right. And talking about pay. I think it's pretty common that workers and employees are discouraged essentially from talking about how much you make. And at least for me, it wasn't something I really questioned. It was kind of just this unspoken social rule of like, you don't talk about money, with your coworkers, right? You don't ask, it's almost like it's rude. Um, But I know in some states that this is, like this may be a legal issue. Um, And I don't know if anyone wants to chime in on that of, you know, what is allowed and what's federally protected or not. So federally, it is a federal law that companies, that most private companies cannot discourage you from talking about pay. However, this may be one of those federal laws where like they may just do it anyway, and you may not have a lot of grounds to fight them on. You also have states that are like so-called right to work states. Um, A company can fire you without cause. It also means you can quit without cause. But if they can, if you talk to your coworkers about your pay, they may fire you shortly after that for, you know, without cause. Um, the advantage to talking, and, and I know this is a social rule that a lot of us may have grown up with. And I grew up in the South, so this was a social rule to not talk about money. But there are advantages to talking to your peers about pay. They may get paid more for no other reason, for, for no reason, really, other than they, um, they advocated for themselves in the job interview. And now you know what they get paid you have as much experience as they do. You are as loyal to the company as they are, and you deserve to get paid just as much as they do. Um, I think the social rule that we're taught is that, 
you may get angry at your peer for getting paid more than you. That's not really the case. I'd be angry at my company for getting paid more. Yeah. It's not, it's not the worker's <laughs> fault. Yeah. Right. That they're getting paid more other than they, they accepted more pay, which I wouldn't fault anyone for that. Yeah. But I, I like they mentioned that it's possible they might have just advocated for a higher pay. I do know, like speaking from experience that I was working at a clinic and one, one coworker who started there a little bit after I did, we got into the money conversation and she told me how much she made hourly. And it was, I think a dollar or two more than, more than I did. And I started there sooner. And it, I don't think it was anything about, you know, a minimum wage difference um, just because of how short the time was. But, you know, I was like, why? <laughs> I was like, how did you get more, get more than I did? Um, and I think that she might have listed higher, higher pay as like what you were expecting. And so, you know, if you don't list a higher pay, like some companies will literally pay you like the lowest amount that you're willing to accept. So I think it's, it's a big thing about self-advocacy for your pay. And I do want to just add that this one especially is across industries. Um, I've seen a lot of people on LinkedIn talking about this recently about, you know, you're hiring someone new, make sure that the salary or hourly rate that you're offering them is comparable to what you're offering the employees you already have. Um, you know, this, this one especially, I've seen a lot of talk about across a lot of industries. And I guess just to bounce off of that, um, in any industry, the moment you start hearing that and they're saying, hey, we don't either allow people or we discourage it, or you're hearing any kind of language that's essentially telling you, you shouldn't talk about this. It's a red flag because there's a reason, right? I don't think I've ever worked at a company that didn't discourage it. That wasn't a good company, right? They're always very transparent with pay and that tended to reflect in other things, right? So if they're trying to hide something, always question why. And moreover, it's okay to ask your employer that. Say, hey, why do you discourage that practice? Because it could very much be that it's on purpose and it's intentional to keep you from discussing with current employees that are not going to get paid the rate that you will or even vice versa. So just keep that in mind. to jump around here and because we're on the topic of money talking about clinical companies that are owned by private equity firms now a lot of nonprofit organizations who provide aba services are often you know they are funded with insurance so that's how they get reimbursed for providing services and um and paying their employees but when it comes to private equity firms, I feel like there's a blurred line in terms of, you know, what is prioritized in, is it money? Is it delivering actual quality services? So let's get into that a little bit. What are your thoughts? This is especially relevant recently, at least uh, in the summer of 2022, we saw a lot of closures of very sudden and a lot of layoffs, very sudden uh, of their employees without notification to their clients, which is to, you know, to many of those RBTs and BCBAs who are affected by this are probably would not have been what they would have done ethically. Really. They would have, they would have notified their clients ahead of time. And a lot of those layoffs occurred I think all of them occurred in companies owned by private equity firms. If um, to, to get information on this, you can ask in an interview who owns the company. If you get a straight answer, like a person's name, then that's probably a good sign. Otherwise, you can Google the company. It'll tell you who owns it. This is, yeah, you should be able to find it out pretty easily. And it, it'll tell you about the balance of, I don't know, of whether money is 
more valuable to them or ethical practice. And another thing relating to that as well is, and you again, you can kind of find this out if you're going for, let's say a BCBA position about what their billable expectation is in your, in your weekly hours. Now, if you've never heard that term, that's more related to the BCBA or BCABA position. RBTs usually don't have um, a requirement for this because most of their hours, if not all, really are billable. And so what this means is if you're working a 40-hour work week and they're telling you that your billable expectation is 40 hours, there is something wrong with there. And I will tell you why is because billable is everything that is directly related to your client. And usually non-billable hours are often those administrative work, right? Um, having to fill out paperwork or entering, um, I don't know, just like clinical notes, right? Out when your session's over or even drive time, things like that. And so if you're working 40 hours a week and they're like, all of that should be built to the client that gives you absolutely no time to do all those extra tasks that don't get eliminated just because, you know, 40 hours is already billable. And you should be getting paid for all of those things, um, especially if you are hourly, like ensure that you're getting paid for those things. Now that might work a little bit differently depending if your salary, but definitely for hourly, that should be paid. Um, and if I can just comment a little bit on drive time, because I do have experience working in homes um, and driving from my house to their house to someone else's house. Um, I, I only worked for one company doing this, but I thought that this company did it very well. And so I'll just provide this as an example of what I experienced. Um, I did not get paid for my first 30 minutes of my commute. Um, that was justified to me as um, everyone has to drive from their house to their wherever they work. And I think that that makes sense. But any time that I had multiple appointments in one day, even if they were six hours apart, I would get paid for the time between those houses um, as well as the miles between those houses. So say that I went out to lunch in between those, I would not get paid to drive to the restaurant and then to the appointment, but I could figure out how far apart they are um, and they would reimburse me for that. So that's just my experience. Yeah, uh, you should, as an RBT or as a BCBA, get reimbursed for anything that you're doing that's related to the job. Uh, I asked a friend of mine about their red and green flags because they've worked in clinical practice. Uh, Eli Proker, just a, a little shout out there. But um, if if you're asked to do work like write client programs or make materials for clients and you're not compensated for that, that's a red flag. You have, the company should provide you the materials to run client programs. You can't make progress with your clients without those materials and you should be compensated for that as well. So on the flip side, the green flag is, are you compensated for client materials? Especially if you're in-home, sometimes you, you'll find you're bringing toys to the client you should be compensated for that as well. And that's something you can ask in the job interview. And you should be compensated to write your session notes. Um, I've worked for companies that did pay me for that and companies that did not pay me for that. Uh, that's a requirement of your job. They should pay you. So let's get into the next thing, which is about BCBAs and everything that kind of goes into that, whether it includes supervision um, you know, BCBAs on site. Let's let's talk about that. Um, in terms of supervision, I don't know if you have ever heard this, but if you're not, if you're if you're in a program to earn hours towards your BCBA, oftentimes on-site universities will provide you with locations to work um, that will provide you with 
free like BCBA supervision, right? Naturally. But I do know that a good amount of people, especially if they are attending an online program, they don't get paired up with practicum sites and they do have to go find their own BCBA to seek supervision from. And I want to talk about having to pay for supervision because this was not something that I had heard about until probably more recently. And this is actually a weirdly common thing. Now, for all of us, we get supervision um, and it's part of our job, but I know that not everyone has the privilege of that. So what are your thoughts? My thoughts are anytime you are benefiting a company at any point, you should be getting compensated, right? If they are going to make any sort of profit, if you are assisting with clients, you need to be getting paid for your time, even as a supervision student. And so that's where I feel like when you go to pay for your hours, it tends to kind of happen in the reverse. Um, and I've personally never heard of any good cases in which students have received really high quality supervision in which they're not being taken advantage of when they're paying for their hours to be supervised. I personally have not had to pay for supervision, but I did have an experience where I got a lower hourly rate um, if I was being supervised. Um, and that was not a great experience. That was also not something that was communicated to me until I was receiving supervision. Um, so there's two for one right there, although hopefully you would recognize these other red flags before you get into the job and start working. Um, but I, I mean, I, I understand the argument that I am benefiting from supervision. However, so is the company because I'm in school, I'm getting an education. I am in ABA, I'm no longer just an RBT, right? By working there, I'm also benefiting you. I can help with writing programs. I can help with being up to date on the newest research and things like that. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and I just think that you should be compensated for the work that you're doing. I will say that on a side note, it does depend on maybe the method of supervision where it's like, if you're not being supervised with a client, let's say that you are like, I want to be supervised by a specific BCBA who maybe doesn't even work in the area. And it's more of a mentorship. I could see good reason for that, like having to pay for that kind of supervision because it is a mentorship where it's, it's not someone that works in the company that you work for, um, who already has, who is already supervising you on clients that you work with. But I think definitely when it's within the company, you know, BCBAs are supposed to be supervising you with your client anyways. So it's not paying for all supervision is bad, but just make sure that you know, when it's appropriate to maybe pay for supervision, if it's, and it's mostly going to be looking for that outside resource. So what about in terms of, because I did mention it, remote supervision. Now, again, if it's a separate entity, that's a different thing. But if it's a BCBA who works for your company and you work maybe in home and they can't always make it out. And the only type of supervision that they do is remote supervision and they never actually drop in. Would you consider that a red flag? Personally, yes. I, I've experienced this. I didn't have nearly the support that I needed with remote supervision. It, in some cases, was a safety issue. And in other cases, even if it weren't a safety issue, it's still getting that in-person contact with the supervisor. They can model things for you. They can engage with the client with you. They can... They can teach you things while they're there. That's a little more beneficial than when they're not there, especially, you know, in, again, in the clinical or an in-home setting. And I will say, you know, we are in a post-COVID world and I absolutely, having lived through COVID, can see that sometimes these things are necessary, right? You know, maybe someone is a BCBA, but they have a compromised immune system and they're not comfortable with that. But ask about, you know, okay, that's great, but is there 
anyone else that I can once a month have somebody in person um, just to model things for me or whatever, who, where can I get that support, even if that's not um, possible from my BCBA? Um, yeah, just because you might have limited support from one BCBA doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek support from other BCBAs in the company, even if it's not, you know, with the same client. I'm sure that most BCBAs would be happy to help because, you know, at the end of the day, what, what we really want is to provide, what we want is to provide exceptional services to our clients. And the way that we do that is by providing exceptional support to our staff who are providing these services. So. I like that you mentioned that, Maddie. I would like to add in the line of support, really important that I've experienced, and I'm sure many of us maybe have, is how is that BCBA to client ratio or BCBA to RBT ratio. If it's if it's really bad, like if that BCBA, that one BCBA has a lot of clients, they're not going to give you a lot of supervision. And you're gonna, you're not gonna get the support that you need and you're not gonna get the help or the training that you need. And a lot of people get left behind in these situations. And just to kind of add on to that point, if you're seeing and hearing about that, even in the early interview stages, or even while you're at the company, that should kind of tell you how your company is supporting their employees, right? So that is just going to be a whole other red flag on top of that, because if they're doing this to their BCBAs, then it is highly likely that they're going to do it to you as well, because they're not seeing value in having that work-life balance and making sure that they can actually meet their goals and care for their clients. And so if they're overloading their BCBAs plates, not only can they not supervise you, but they're not going to be able to do really anything else. So just be aware of that, that if you're seeing these things in one place, you're likely going to see them in other places too. Speaking of work-life balance, I don't think this is on our list, but I just thought of it. Um, another thing to, that you can pay attention to is when you are getting communication. Um, if you are getting your communication at midnight consistently or on Sundays, what is that saying about the work-life balance um, that is expected of individuals at that company? Um, to me, that's saying that there's not a lot of work-life balance and that they're working around the clock. Um, and I personally would prefer to have a break and not have that expectation. Again, going back to the support of your BCBA. So at least in clinics, right, maybe a thing to be out on the lookout for is, is there someone that's on site constantly kind of giving, doing the rounds, right, to make sure that their, their staff are there, that their staff are doing what they need to do, and if they need any support, that the BCBA is there to give it. Um, it's not uncommon to have, you know, BCBAs just be on their laptops a lot. And it's almost like they're just not fully present. Now, granted, I know that they're probably doing things on there that are related to the client. But I do think that there is value in being present and having to give support to your staff. Just like, yeah, to your staff. And so a possible red flag is if there are BCBAs on site, but they're on, they're only in their office, right? They're not walking through trying to see like, oh, do you need help? Or if you never see them supervising you, that I would say that's definitely uh, a red flag. Yeah. Uh, if they're on the floor and engaging with clients and engaging with RBTs, that's, you know, that, that again goes to that valuable supervision in contrast to, are they in their office a lot of the time and only run out when there's a crisis? One way to find out about that client to supervisor ratio is one, you can ask, uh, what is, what does the ratio look like? You can also find out if you are able to tour the facility. If you're doing, if you're working in a clinic, it's, it's probably a green flag. If you can tour the facility, it's, you know, among other things, it shouldn't be the only thing you look for, but you should, you can see 
you can see what the environment looks like. How stressed out do people seem to feel? How much support are they getting from their BCBA? I think the only other thing I could add to that is if they're on the floor, just them being there isn't always necessarily a green flag. Definitely, if you're interviewing, ask people about what that looks like. What are they doing when they're on the floor? How are they interacting with people? Are they coming in and are RBTs just ended up standing in the corner of the clinic while they're running a session instead? What does their feedback look like? So when they're there, it should be quality supervision and quality feedback. So that can kind of be a little bit of a gray area. Uh, another thing you can look at in a company, our, our peer, Abigail Petronelli, brought this up. See how long other people who work there have been there. If a lot of people were hired more recently and all around the same time, that could indicate high turnover which would beg some looking into. It's at least a yellow flag for that. Right. I mean, there may be some reasons for a large amount of new employees, right? If they've recently expanded, then they recently needed to hire a lot of people. However, you know, even if there is a good reason for a large number of new employees, ask about the the supervision and how many upper level employees they have to work with those new employees because I've heard had friends who have been hired at clinics um, having had significant experience and because they had a lot of new employees at, at that same time they weren't trained um, and even if you have a lot of experience coming into any new place you need training you need to know who to talk to and what's going on um, so I would say that this is definitely, you know, not necessarily a red flag, but even if you have a lot of experience and are confident in what you're doing, you do need to pay attention if this is the case. And that kind of brings me to a point, pay attention always, right? Even if you're first starting, if you've been there for a long time, really attend to the practices of not only other RBTs, but also the BCBAs, the owners of the company. Um, be really aware of the laws and regulations surrounding your practice. And I can't emphasize that enough because there are a lot of companies that do unfortunately try to shove things up under the line because they think you don't know. So please know, be aware of HIPAA laws because I've been at companies where those are regularly violated. And at the end of the day, that can affect you as well. So keep that in mind that they can involve you in these things and definitely don't sit back and think that these things don't happen because they do. I've experienced them. I know people who have experienced them. Um, there are really poor practices out there. There are BCBAs who are in this field, not for the clients. So seriously, be attentive. Like if they are asking you to get rid of files before, the, before they should, bring that up. That's a problem. That There's a reason, right? If they are rewriting your session notes for what they want to say, that's a problem. Um, if they flat out refuse to pay you, that's a problem. They cannot do that. <laughs> so for anyone else that has been at that point, they can't do that to you, right? And you have a voice always. So seriously, kind of like Maddie said, pay attention to anything they do. Those little things will build up. So yeah, it can. it's rough out there, y'all. Be careful. Um, so... Those are some really great like things that we can pay attention to as far as other employees. Um, but in talking about clinics, we've got kids in there. You know, what are some things that we can look at with the kids um, that would give us an idea of red and green flags at that place? I like this point a lot. Um, in fact, I, I asked my friend Eli Proctor about this and they said, you know, are there designated play spaces, for example, and for like a playground or a playroom, so that way the kids can get some like gross motor and some energy out, really. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> How crowded is it as well when you're in that environment? If it's overly crowded, it's, it's going to get overwhelming for the kids and probably for you. Um, how do the kids react 
when BCBAs or other RBTs come in the room. I can't emphasize that enough. Pay attention to that because there's a reason we're behavior analysts, right? That doesn't happen overnight. So if they're running away, crying and screaming when one particular person comes in the room or if it's your BCBA, watch out for that and really think about it. And that is very likely something you need to bring up to someone to figure out why. I think another big thing to be on the lookout for, and this is obviously like once you've already been hired and are probably starting is um, having what's called like a cold start. So let's say you get paired with a client and this is the first time that you're, you're meeting the client at, you know, a home or a school, anywhere that any location where the BCBA may not be. Um, and you're there for the first time and the BCBA isn't necessarily there to support you. I think that that is potentially a yellow flag, like yeah, a yellow flag or even a red flag if the BCBA is not there. And especially if you are not an experienced technician, I know it's pretty common, especially if they're low on staff and they're like, we know that you are comfortable with like going in and, and pairing and you're like a superstar on the field. And that's one thing, but if to send a new, you know, RBT out there meeting a, a client and, you know, the family without any support that indicates that it, there might be something more to it. You know, how much are they actually willing to support their staff when it comes to things like that? I also want to add, you know, how open about what your first session should look like, um, are they? I had an, an a, I spent a couple of weeks, a couple of summers ago doing sub sessions. So where, you know, someone was on vacation or whatever, and I would go and work with a client for one session and one session only. And that was really, really hard. And I had some BCBAs who wanted data on the clients, even though I had never met them ever before, and I would never meet them again. Um, and I understand that for problem behavior, absolutely. But I had some BCBAs who wanted me to be running sessions or running trials and programs. And I had other BCBAs who were very clear about you're you're there, and I want you to pair with the client. You know, if you want to probe a couple of generalization things or maintenance things, probe them. Um, but that type of communication is really important for the client, but also that type of miscommunication is the reason that I cried during a session in a bowling alley. And that was really embarrassing. Um, and I just, I don't want anyone else to have that experience. And definitely ask what your, if you're initially coming in, what your caseload's going to look like and the type of behaviors that you are likely to encounter with the clients they're planning you for. It can be a red flag, especially if this is your first time ever being an RBT and you're in the field and you're immediately working with um, problem behavior, especially aggression, right? Be very, be very tentative and ask them. And it's okay to ask them because if you are a brand new RBT, you are not ready for those cases. And I can't emphasize that enough. As much as you think you are, you are not, you need experience and you need support. So don't be afraid to ask them and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself and say, Hey, I'm not ready for that kind of thing. Right. I, I need to start slower. I need more training. Um, yeah. That happened to me. My first client ever was in home with a very aggressive client. And I got, I wasn't trained to work with a client like that. And I know there are specific trainings for working with aggression. I don't know what they're called. I've never had them. My company did not provide them. I think the fact that your company didn't provide them, regardless of whether you were put on a case with, high, with, for, with a client who had high aggression, um, because it's not like those clients don't exist. Um, that should always have every, I think every RBT should be trained, um, in those safety procedures, uh, because you just never know what client, what client you're going to get. It's also an ethical concern. Is this within your scope of practice as an RBT? And 
as a BCBA, they're supposed to look out for you to make sure that you're, you are also practicing within your scope of practice. If you're an RBT. I do think that that is, is difficult at times because especially if there's not enough seasoned RBTs to be on all the difficult cases, right. And you just have more kids who or sorry, you just have more clients who may be on the more aggressive side, right. You sometimes you're going to have to put someone who's less seasoned on that case. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's out of their scope of practice. I think that that just means that the BCBA should be there more frequently. That's probably an RBT who needs to be receiving more supervision, more support to ensure that they are, you know, following the protocol and they're not injuring the client or, and and more importantly, not injuring themselves while they're trying to work with the client. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of the green flags now. So I do want to list at least a few points and we can kind of get more into it. Um, and some of these things are basically the opposite of some of those red flags. Um, so I'll start us off by saying paid staff training, uh, just because you're not working with a client doesn't mean you shouldn't get paid. If you're doing something for the company that they, especially if they're requiring you to be there, you should get paid for that. (laughs) And that includes staff bonding events. Um, you know, especially if they're like, Hey, please come in. It's on site. Um, that is a green flag. If they're paying you for that, it's not always paid, especially if it's more of a social, right? Hey, we're, we're all going to get dinner together. That's not always paid, but it's great if it is. So I would consider those green flags for sure. I'd consider it a green flag if they even have those events really. Absolutely. I, I think that especially if you were working in home, those events where you actually see the people you work with, they are invaluable. The floor is open. You're good. I'm going to jump down a little bit because I can connect two of them. Um, I also think, you know, if they have, if you're like placed on some kind of team where you can work with other people, even if it's a different BCBA than overseas cases that you're on, or it's different RBTs than are have similar clients with you. Um, I worked at a place where every month we had a supervision meeting with someone who was never over any of my cases. Um, And honestly, I valued it a lot because if I ever felt uncomfortable or I wasn't sure about uh, like the ethicality of something, it wasn't awkward to ask someone else. Um, And for me, it also turned into some really great friendships and those types of things. Um, Okay, we've resorted to this. Kelsey, I'm going to call on you because I'm going to have you read some things off this list. When you are an RBT or especially a supervision student, there might be times where you have to make things or get things to bring to a clinic. If these things are already provided for you, big green flag, right? Do they have the materials in the clinic? Um, you know, even if it's something like a printer, or if you need to get specific reinforcers, do they reimburse you for that? How quickly are they willing to reimburse you? How easy is that process? Do they even have a process for doing that? Um, if they do big green flag, big, big green flag, that's good. That means they're looking out for you and they're respecting your time and your finances. Kelsey, did you want to talk a little bit about intellectual property? I can talk all about intellectual property. Um, This is a really big topic for me. Um, Just to kind of like start a one big thing, you have a right to the things that you make that you you do deserve to be credited. Um, And when you are coming to work for a company, I know we mentioned previously, if they have anything in their contract that says you are not going to get credit for any of that work, it could potentially be a red flag. There might be a yellow flag. I know it's very case dependent, right? Um, But there are ways for you to protect your intellectual property. One of the easiest ways to do it is if you haven't heard of it, it's called a creative commons license. Um, There will be a website link for you to go to. It is 100% free. You pay absolutely nothing. And it is amazing. Um, You can ask anyone who's seen any of my presentations, even in school, right? I have that on there. 
because what you are doing is essentially protecting everything you make, because unfortunately people will take them and they will distribute them. And not only will you not get credit for making those things, but you will also not be compensated. So um, definitely go on and look at the Creative Commons licenses. It's really easy to navigate. Essentially, all you're doing is you're selecting the restrictions that you want people to have um, whenever they're trying to either use your product or edit your product or distribute it in any way. It's pretty simple. I believe um, just their base level is literally that they just have to credit you. That's it. Really simple, but it can go up to being very, very restrictive in that not only do they have to credit you, but they can only make very limited changes. Like it really can't change anything major about the content that they also can't benefit financially from it, which those tend to get really restrictive. And going forward, you might have issues with some companies that aren't okay with that. That's something that I've encountered before kind of on the back end um, is that some people are not going to want that restriction on there, but you do have that option. So definitely talk about authorship. Always, always, always. This could be if you are an academic, if you are in clinical work, or even if you're not in the field of behavior analysis at all, ask. It is a very uncomfortable conversation to have, especially when you're not used to having it, but it is very, very important. And if they are kind of bouncing around those questions, take note of that um, and read your definitely read your contracts to see where you can add this in because kind of like Victoria mentioned, this might not be an option for you. So be wary of that. But again, this is going to be posted for you where you can just go and check out the link. I won't go in super detail with it because I swear it is actually really straightforward, even though it doesn't seem that way. All you do is you copy and paste the tiny icon of the license and it is legally protected. Um, it's not a perfect system, but it is almost always better than having nothing because it is a kind of small way to protect yourself at the end of the day. Thanks for sharing that, Kelsey. Yeah, I, I didn't even know about any of those like intellectual property and licensing like info in general. Like it's not something I thought about, but I think that if you are making things for a company, it's definitely something that you should have a right to as intellectual property. So let's just wrap up with a couple more of the general green flags. And please note that not all companies have the privilege of being able to provide these things. However, if they do, again, immediately recognize that as a green flag. Some of these things may include guaranteeing a full-time position. Now, if you're part-time, this may not be relevant to you, but if you're looking for a full-time job, and especially with the hours, it's it can be tricky to, to get a guaranteed full-time position. Um, if a client is a no-show or a they show up late, but you show up on time, right? You should still be getting paid for that time that you are there because it's not, it's not your fault that the client did not show up, right? Again, that's not necessarily something that they are billing to the client, but you should still be getting paid for that time. Some other things include tuition reimbursement, CE reimbursement, really anything that shows that the company is willing to invest in your growth, whether that's by providing opportunities for you to learn more or having opportunities to even grow within the company. Along with that is added bonuses or raises, right? If you are passing your quarterly evaluations or you know the last X amount of treatment integrity checks that they've done on you and you've passed them with flying colors, is there some sort of incentive um, to continue doing that, right? Are they reinforcing those behaviors? Also, is there an on-site supervisor, especially within clinics? We mentioned this earlier that it's a red flag or yellow flag if they're there, but they're not actually being productive with like supporting their staff and, and being present with the clients. But if there is someone there, that's definitely at least a green flag that you know that there's someone there that can support um, now, whether or not they do is a different question, but there is someone there um, I would deem as a green flag. And lastly, also just take a look at, you know, how many experienced RBTs are there? How many experienced BCBAs are there, right? These are the people you're going to be working with. And so an indication of how long they've been there and how experienced they are can give you an indication of how long, um, sorry, can give you an indication of how 
your work experience may be. And if you have more experienced people, that might be a green flag that you're going to benefit a lot more. So again, we talked a lot about just the different types of flags. So how would you even be able to identify whether something's a red or green flag, like just in general, um, how would everyone here go about finding those flags? I think that we can research the companies, you know, that that's something that at least I've always learned to try to do before an interview. And hopefully this podcast helps you get a little bit of information on how you like what kinds of things you can look up. Um, you know, you definitely can look at ratings and reviews that are, you know, online. Keep in mind the size of the company, right? If a large company has a lot of negative reviews, that's definitely a red flag. But if it's a very small company, this is ABA or maybe it's not ABA, you know, maybe take them with a grain of salt if it's a smaller company. But, you know, look at who works there, things like that. Google is your best friend. Another thing that you can do when going about your research is go on their website, right? If they do provide a list of their BCBAs, they usually will have a description. So you can kind of see how long they've been in the field, you know, what their experience is. Definitely look them up. I'm sure most of them have a LinkedIn page or some sort of profile with their experience on there if it's if there's not enough information on the website. So that's another thing that you can potentially look at. I know that every company does this, but do they post their pay range and provide information on benefits? This can be a yellow flag if they don't. This should be something you ask in an interview at the very least. Um, look at kind of on top of that, see not only what are they asking in their interview, but also in their applications, right? What kind of questions are in the application? Um, if you do get to the interview point, really attend to what kinds of questions they're asking you. Keep in mind, there are a lot of questions about your personal life that they cannot ask you. Um, so just very general recommendation. If you do encounter that, just very nicely ask, you know, I appreciate that you're asking that, but how is that relevant to the position, you know, and question that because it's okay, because there are some things they can't ask. Um, so that's a really easy way to identify a really big red flag is if they're asking you those things. I was just going to say, you know, also be aware of, you know, maybe people are just being conversational. Um, you know, I am married, I wear a wedding ring. And if I have just arrived and I met someone 10 seconds ago and they are maybe fumbling for something to say and they say, oh, are you married? Then I'm probably not going to be as concerned as if I am sitting in an interview with someone and they say, so are you married? Like that, that's a different conversation. And that, that tells me something different. Um, that maybe that other person is just really sneaky about finding out information. Um, but I, I do tend to try to think the best of people. Um, and if you're not comfortable talking about your personal relationships, you don't have to be. Um, but, you know, do consider context and uh, there are certain questions you could probably ask in an interview to find a lot of these flags such as, um, you know, we mentioned a few of these earlier, like the billable expectation of BCBAs and, and scheduling. I'd also ask a little bit about, can you adjust your schedule to work with particular clients in some way? And I don't mean, you know, can you only, to some degree, this is, this can be within your control and to some degree it can't, right? Not everyone can work with their favorite clients, but can you work with clients like you want to learn more about like, with, um, you know, if you need to build, if you're a trainee and you're trying to build up your repertoire of clients that you've worked with, do you have some control over that? Can you work with, like, if you've never worked with um, a client that needs low supports, can you work with a client like that? And um, also consider within scope, within scope of competence for that. Can you, work with those clients and get training on it. 
as opposed to being assigned clients that are not within your scope of competence, that are too stressful for you to work with, that are burning you out. And can you adjust your schedule so that you have a little bit more of a balance? And I would say, especially with, um, no, that's not a good transition. Sorry, guys. Um, I also would encourage you to ask if you can speak to a current employee who has that same position and ask them the same questions. And if you get the same answers, great. And if you're getting two different answers from two different people, that's also a red flag. I think when you do talk to people who work at the company, you can kind of gauge like how are employees treated, right? Because you want to check to make sure that am I getting a good employee experience, but also how do the staff treat the clients? Um, Because at the end of the day, that is a very high priority. And we want to make sure that the treatment delivery is efficient not, that's not the right word. The treatment delivery is effective and it's being delivered ethically, right? So that they are treating their clients with respect, just like they're treating their employees. I think, and this is kind of something I would almost bounce back to with what Maddie was talking about. Um, Definitely ask them about how they foster a work-life balance in their company. That's something that I know more recently we're starting to consider, especially with how that contributes to burnout. So it's a really straightforward question um, to just see, right? And really attend to how they answer that because they should be trying to do that for you. So just be upfront and be upfront with their expectations and your expectations in that area too. So thank you for joining us as we have this conversation keep in mind that this was a conversation. This was the list that we came up with. This is not exhaustive. Um, If you have any ideas that you would like to add, if you feel very strongly that we missed something, there will be an email in the show notes that you can send us an email and we can potentially add to this list or record another podcast in the future. Um, So we would like to invite you to join us next episode where we're going to talk to Megan and Victoria as they are uh, finishing up their master's degrees and graduating and leaving us. And we just want to discuss what they have learned and how their experience has gone. Um, So join us next time.